All right, soccer freaks. This is ATL on Fire, the podcast. We're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode, and we are in person, Dave, after... Hallelujah. And uh, finally get to use the equipment that uh, I upgraded this to for the podcast, but one of the good side effects is we're now on YouTube, so you get to see our pretty faces. That I'm not sure is so good, but I'll yeah. go with it for now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, a lot of, lots to talk about. Um, we, I think, have two soccer games to talk about, the, the Miami game, uh, which uh, ended in a draw 1-1, and then I uh, was able to go to the game last night. Uh, and Me as well. As, yeah, that's right. So uh, lots to talk about there as well. Uh, maybe we, uh, we start first with some ATL on fire trivia, which you're not ready for. Which is Wow, kind of that's yeah. like, you know, way Cur- to go. Let's Cur- go. Curveball. We're in. All right, you ready? We're going we're gonna to go rapid fire here. I've gone to the bottom of the internet here. <laughs> That means I have no chance, dear podcast listener. Ten questions. What <laughs> or who or what is the origin of the bicycle kick? Is there a person that first did the bicycle kick or did it come? To be from- honest with you, I have no idea, but I, I'm going to say that, you know, there were a couple of early Brazilians who were, you know, the pioneers of this. And so it has to go back to one of those, but I don't know. Very close. So evidently it's Afro-Peruvian seaport workers may have been the first to perform the bicycle kick in the late 19th century matches. But does it say, I mean, the bicycle is presumably just because upside down it looks like you're riding a bicycle? I don't know why they call it. It's called the uh, Calleo Strike, assuming that the two L's are a Y. Yep. Calleo Strike. Yeah. Pretty good assumption. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, all right, how old is Brad Guzan, the man of the match last night, maybe? I want to say he's 34. 36. <sighs> he's getting up there, man. Wow. That's why I was kind of putting that one in there. I was like, Do we yeah. He's, he's at the end. Yeah, but goalkeepers, you know, keep in mind, you know, they're, they're still in their prime, you know, up until almost 38, you know, and you get to 40, uh, unless you're Buffon, then uh, you can play till you're 50. Yeah. <laughs> What, uh, what is Atlanta United's record as of today? Um, rapid fire where um, two wins and um, two ties and a loss. That's correct. Similar to the, uh, the bicycle kick question, who established the first use of the rainbow in professional competition? The rainbow in professional I, I, competition. I, I, I can't remember seeing one, but now that I saw a highlight – uh, of somebody getting rainbowed in an Arsenal game, it's been done at the highest level, which I wouldn't have thought somebody would be so brave. But there's a guy <laughs> who's kind of known for it. Don't know. J.J. Akocha. Oh, the Nigerian. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Yeah, he played in Premier League for a number of years. So he's, he's, he's kind of recognized. He had ridiculous skills. Wasn't always as effective as you might wanted him to have been, but yeah. he did have ridiculous skills. I could see uh, who's the Brazilian, Ronaldinho, trying that too. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
What is the longest goal ever scored? How many yards? Um, and it just happened January of 2021, breaking a former goalkeeper from Chelsea's record of uh, about yeah. 126. 105 yards. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I just thought that far. I just watched it. it you know, it, he boomed it. It took a big bounce in front of the goalkeeper on the other end. I'm trying to remember whether regulation, you know, you can go beyond 120. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it, you know, the regulation soccer pitches are so funny because it's, it's, there's no true set regulation. It's, uh, you know, within a parameters, right. Yeah. You know, and, and technically a, a regulation soccer field can come actually pretty close to being a square. I mean, you never see it that way, but um, it's kind of odd. Anything would be better than NYFC's. Field. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, you might as well be playing in a peewee park yeah. or something. What, what <laughs> is the new team in the MLS this year? The new team in the MLS this year, um, you know, Nashville and Miami came in last year. Um, who is the new team in Who's the, the MLS? Um, and St. Louis is coming next year. Um, why am I blanking on the newest team? All right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, of course, Austin FC, <laughs> right? Go, right. <laughs> Duh. All right. Yeah. So you already got one. Matthew McConaughey. One of the next, who are the next two teams? You already got one of them uh, that'll be coming in in 2022. Yeah, it's St. Louis. Um, who is the other one? It is Charlotte. Charlotte. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. So if, Dave, you wanted to pony up for a... Uh, an expansion team in the MLS. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think it cost Nashville and Cincinnati their year to invest in a franchise expansion team in the MLS? What was their, what did they have to pony up? How I'm going to say how many, 50 many, million. Uh, three times that amount. Wow. 150 million. Okay. Uh, so Matthew McConaughey must be doing all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, yeah. Evidently the, uh, and he's running for uh, governor. Oh wow! Right of Texas, so you know. So buy in now because evidently the thirtieth team will cost you three hundred and twenty-five million. Yeah, I know it's been going up and up and yeah. up. Um, what is the official name of the Columbus MLS team? Yeah, they got they dropped the crew. Yeah. Right. So they're now Columbus United. Is that true? It's just uh, Columbus, or just Columbus. Soccer, soccer Club. Oh, Columbus Soccer Club. Yeah. So why do you think they're doing this? This is like so Montreal is no longer the Montreal Impact as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, it's CF Montreal. Yeah, Club de Football, yeah. which goes back to the you know the French origins. But there has to have been like some research on why the MLS is strategically doing this at the MLS level, and there's reasons teams like Atlanta United pick the name that I hated. I was like, can we come up with something better than Atlanta? And I love Atlanta United now. So yeah. they got it right. So there's something to it since I would admit that I was wrong, that I would like Atlanta United. You're never wrong, Mikey. Dom, I know. So I try not don't to admit be. that. Um, you know, I think it's authenticity, right? You know, when they started the league, I mean, keep in mind, people don't remember this, but when they started the MLS, there was music playing when they were, when the, uh, when the match was going on, all games that ended in a tie went into a, a penalty kick shootout where you dribbled from midfield because they thought Americans wouldn't accept ties. They thought Americans would be bored by watching soccer without music, right? And, and that's why you had names like 
crew and, you know, and whatever, um, you know, cause Columbus was one of the original members. So, um, I think authenticity wise, they have now realized that we don't need any of that, yeah. you know, pardon my language BS, um, and American soccer fans are sophisticated and, um, you know, we get it. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, last question here. Who is the highest played player in the MLS and how much do you think they make as a bonus? It's got to be one of the LA Mexicans, either Chicharito or Carlos Vela. They are the two highest. Um, I want to say, I mean, I would pay Vela more. Oh yeah, I would, I would too. But, <laughs> so, Chicharito, but Chicharito was last. So yeah. maybe it goes up from there. I don't know. So yeah, it's Chicharito, 6 million. And I think, uh, yeah, uh, Vela is just, just below that. Okay. All right, so uh, all right, so it wasn't a total um, shellacking that I took. No, you did great. I think that may be. A, <laughs> um, so why why don't we jump to uh, the big article from the Athletic just to talk about the front office mm. and and kind of how we you know. I was our, waiting to see whether that was going to be first or last. Way yeah. to be bold, Mikey. Dobbs. I'm going bold. I mean, it's kind of been talked about uh a, a ton already in the social media outlets um, until it gets talked about on the atl on fire it right. means nothing so true <laughs> and so we are going to break it down a little bit i feel like there's some things that are interesting and there's some things that aren't um the things that aren't interesting from that article to me is maybe like the nagby situation i think there's probably a lot more to it than even what they're saying, like, yeah, sure we we could have kept him i think he had a foot out the door if we we were committed to keep him. Um, I, I don't think there was any stopping him from going. So I yeah, the article for the podcast listeners out there sort of suggested that um, you know part of it was the relationship with Nagby and Bocanegra, and that also he would have stayed. And they eventually made an offer, but it was after he was one foot out the door. And I'm with you, Mikey Dobbs. I think I'm calling BS on that as well. Um, he was always out the door. And yeah, maybe those things didn't help, but that's not why. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, Gressel, I think, was mismanaged. And I agree. And the decisions maybe made by Carlos Bocanegra, if I was guessing, were a big factor in that on maybe bringing someone in like a Jurgen Dom, who, by the way, gets paid $1.5 million. He's our third highest paid player on the team, which I don't understand how he's not a designated player. Maybe we can come back to that. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I like Jurgen Dom, but I don't know that I like Jurgen Dom now that I know he gets paid $1.5 million. <laughs> so that's, it's, you know, that's interesting when these salaries get mm -hmm. put out there. I'm like, that guy's getting paid way too much for what he's producing. But Jurgen Dom's not, hasn't been the problem, right? You know, no. when, when we had all the problem, you know, it was the Breck Shays and these, there was American MLS guys with pace and strength and, you know, no real sophistication for the game. Um, and, you know, you could say that, you know, maybe Jurgen Don's the Mexican version of that with pace and whatever, but he definitely has a little bit of sophistication. I mean, the guy who's left over from that, you know, with all due respect, is probably Mulraney. Um, also pace and strength and whatever, and hasn't, to me, shown so much sophistication for the game. But Bocanegra was apparently, according to the article, his job was to get guys from the MLS. And to be honest, to be fair, you know, our, our winning signings have not been from the MLS. 
our winners really have been through the draft, Miles Robinson kind of uh, thing. You got Parkhurst and Lorenowitz. Well, in the original, I mean, since then. Yeah. I mean, right. not since the original, um, Correct. original view, yeah. right? So Parkhurst and Lorenowitz was the, was the yeah. first two. But since then, I think we've made some really bad ones. I'd throw Adam John in there. Well, Adam John, you could argue at least was that was just we got to have something to yeah. cover while Martinez is not here. But well, the the cover something like I, like John was it John Gallagher or whatever he's starting at uh, some somewhere. And but he was drafted, right? I don't know why, but he was, he was draft dynamic pick. and way more interesting oh, yeah. as an option up front than anything I've seen from uh, Torres to to Adam John to you know I, I liked what I saw a little bit of Lazandro Lopez Perez, yeah. um, who evidently I think may be retiring I think his, his dad had passed away mm-hmm. a week ago and he's thir- you know 38 years yeah, old Lazandro so. Lopez and yeah. and um, yeah that's a sad situation because yeah. he was really close with his dad and I think it's finally taken a lot out of him and that might be it um, but you know the the yeah the MLS signees you know Kubo Torres um you know hasn't given us anything um yeah i mean sure yeah and yeah i'm trying to think of who else kind of fits in in those like clear decisions that are coming from a likely carlos bocanegra to balance all the kind of what i would say would be more obvious picks coming from a coaching target perspective that are mm-hmm. you know obviously the argentinian camp of uh, who I'll get to, we'll get to in a minute, but I think you know I, I have some optimism around uh, an Abara and an Eric Lopez from the short minutes I've seen. I actually am pretty optimistic uh, for their growth. Yeah, I mean you know the roster over time has been constructed from you know three groups. We've had South American contingent, we've had a little bit of an MLS contingent, we've had a European contingent. People forget about you know there's a number of players. Even you know Emerson Heinemann came from Europe. Um, Mulraney came from Europe. Walks. Um, Walks came from Europe. Um, and you know presumably, or according to the article that you know Darren Niels has had a little bit more say over that. Yeah, that's where him coming from Tottenham. Um, that's his expertise, I guess, but, um, you know, when you look at the, (laughs) you can make an argument that when you look at the real true winners that we have had, um, they really were players that were hand selected by Tata, right? Joseph Martinez, right. And Miggy. And I mean, those have been the huge winners. So definitely fascinating in that article though, that, um, Tata and, Bocanegra were not talking towards the end of Tata Martino's stint at Atlanta United going into the championship, right? Like right. that's pretty uh, telling of uh, Carlos Bocanegra, who is in that role for the first time in his life of being a technical director at a big soccer club. And um, I guess not earning the respect of one of the best coaches in Argentina and now the national coach of, of Mexico. So the, there are red flags no matter what when I think of it from that perspective that he was also asked to leave like tactical uh, <laughs> yeah. training situations, whether it was watching video or, or whatever. And I mean, come on, I'm going to stop you right there. Like right. you got Tata coaching the team, right? And you're general manager or whatever the title is. And you're sitting in on tactical sessions, trying to have input over tactics. 
I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, it's one thing to sit in and be like, look, I would like to learn from Tata, yeah. you know, and I want to listen. But, you know, I would say sit down and, and shut up. Like, yeah. I mean, and, and as a coach, you know, especially where, you know, his stature and also what he did, you know, on the field and the players he brought, I would be like, you know, get out of my face. I, I, I you yeah. know, I completely understand that. Yeah. And, um, and it goes back to the, the interesting part of the article too, which it, it seems like Carlos is maybe not the best communicator. It'd be one of my guesses because I, I don't know, you know, the, the Bielsa story probably has way more layers to it, but if you didn't read the article, uh, Mark, what's, what's his first name? Bielsa, Mark, Marco, Mark, Marco Bielsa, yeah. who, who is the coach of Leeds United, um, and has taken them from the championship to uh, above the mid table in the premier league this year mm-hmm. uh, over the course of three seasons regarded as one of like the mad geniuses of, of coaching and soccer was interested specifically in Atlanta United when he heard that there was going to be this club that uh, was kind of change, changing things and shaking things up. I think pretty wild that he had reached out to uh, the front office to basically let them interview him and, and hear what his vision was for being a coach of a, an MLS team. And long story short, it was two, two years before the 2017 season. So you're not going to necessarily appoint a coach, but uh, the stink of it was, is that I guess whatever the communication was that Bielsa wanted to hear back quickly, that he had the job, mm. whatever the agreed upon timeline, mm-hmm. the ball was dropped in his viewpoint that it wasn't uh was not followed through with, with a yes or a no. But I think, you know, from that article standpoint, I would have to say Eels and Bokenecker come out as a winner because first of all, you know, although he's a tactical genius, you know, at some level and he's innovated and, and so much of the, the pressuring high tempo kind of football comes from his sort of school of thought. He's, I think given maybe way too much credit for that, but um, so one thousand percent. I think at the end of the day, they made a great decision in hiring Tata, right? And got a yeah, situation. and they also were like, when you know, credit to them for not having a guy come in from day one and say, you know, I can name myself as the coach. Yeah. And they're like, no, and, we're and, the organization. And, and yeah, Carlos did not uh, feel good about it. I'm sure because he wanted total autonomy on all player choices, and it was clear from that he didn't understand the craziness of the MLS and what Tam and Gam mean. So, yeah. um, and, and he wasn't, which is fair and which is fair. <laughs> but, um, what I don't understand is even with Eels, who was on the record and why didn't they, why didn't they just ask the, him directly to clear this up? Like, yeah. what was the communication? Was it like, like, did Bielsa act like a baby and he didn't hear back in 24 hours and just said, never call me again, which I could see that happening. And, F off Bielsa. He's That's had a fine, reputation but... of being a little bit of a. So, so know, I don't understand way. why like Eels wouldn't have just said that, especially since they're probably never going to hire him as a coach ever again. Like there's no, no reason to save a little face there and just say that. Or was it because they did drop the ball and literally didn't follow up with them and have, some, go, have some egg on their face? I'm going to go with door number three though. Like that, that, you know, yeah, it'd be good to come out and defend your fellow, you know, director, him and Bocanegra are in charge. But um, on the other hand, what do you gain from trashing a national international figure like that? I mean, that 
I, I think you just have some restraint and you just move on. Yeah, I guess. But I would at least say maybe there's there's a little more to it than that. And just say, look, I we feel that, you know, we 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 didn't disrespect him in the in the way it wasn't like we hadn't planned to follow. I think Eels, Eels knows how to deal with the press in a way that can answer that with door number three. Mm-hmm. And they just. Yeah. And so now you're leaving us to speculate on it which is the worst door number four option <laughs> out there. Whenever you let Mikey Dobbs speculate, <laughs> dear podcast listeners, do, who knows where you're going to get, you've seen the trivia question. Oh, so man. I went, um, I was struggling. I, I, I pulled those together in like five minutes. Um, <laughs> but you know, the thing that I find about that article that I think we should discuss is that um, supposedly, you know, that at the end, um, Bocanegger was sort of making decisions about who he wanted and, um, wasn't really, you know, advocating. And, and that extended into the DeBoer era, like that he was making choices that DeBoer didn't really know about or whatever. Um, I think you got to step back from that because, so if you look at Heinze being hired, for example, right, he gets hired and all of a sudden we get Abara, we get, um, 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 Alan, Alan Franco, of course, um, you know, the guys who he clearly wanted to bring in as part of his yeah. thing. And so, so there's no Sosa. indication. Sosa, right. Yeah. Sosa, right. So the, there's no indication that Bocanegger is imposing himself and not allowing the coaches to bring in who they wanted. And he also, even, even before we got Alan Franco, you know, we made a bid for a defender from Heinz's own team um, you know, who, was going to be hired and just failed his physical, right, right? Right, and that's not Bocanegger either. So, you know, these articles, of course, love to stir the pot. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think you got to step back and and have a little more perspective and, and give Bocanegger a little bit more benefit of the right. doubt. But what do you think about? I mean, either Frank DeBoer is a buffoon, which is a <laughs> reasonable guess at this point. Not really, though. Like it is odd, though, that. He didn't know about the Gressel situation um, and almost had to be told on the field that, you know. I have to say, you know, I think Gressel was a really poorly managed situation from the fan standpoint, from I think for the amount of money I think that he wanted, I think, and, and what he was doing for the club at that point. The number of times he combined with Martinez, who was going to stay, yeah. I think that it made no sense to let him go. Yeah. I 100% agree. And, and you know, I, I while they claim maybe it was, you know, trying to do him the best interest of making sure he got paid at what his rate was at another club, mm-hmm. why not just pay him it here and not pay Jurgen Dom $1.5 million? That's all yeah. I'm saying. I don't know. Um, and then, yeah, with Heinze, I think it's a let's wait and see how the relationship with Heinze happens. To your point, it's clear that Heinze has had the freedom to bring in some target players that have were on his list. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. another five that we haven't been able to get because of the way that the cap works within the MLS. And that seems reasonable to me, but um, let's move on. Unless you, is there anything else from that article? That, no, I think, yeah, I think we covered it. Um, so why don't we move on to, you know, the last two games, uh, Miami, uh, which I'm going to rely on you to recall the, uh, the the one one game if if I recall it just seemed like a I don't know I, I guess I'd call it a decent game but not um uh you know n- not one that I I necessarily feel like we deserve the win on either well we started out well on the front foot you know we did pretty 
well in the early going. And then Joseph Martinez scores the great turn goal, you know, and it's probably the only moment thus far this season that he has at all looked like Joseph Martinez. So, you know, it's good to know he's still got that in him. Um, yeah. But, you know, by no means people are like, oh, he's back or whatever. And, and there's no way. I mean, just the way that, um, you know, in this in the last game, I noticed that, you know, um, Atlanta United um, last night, um, there was just a ball he was checking back to and he had a defender on his back and he was making sure he got his steps right he's rather like than he's almost squatting i remember that rather than moment. looking for the first touch and he made a bad first touch and turned it over and yep. you know that's when he's he's just not comfortable yet yeah um but then the other the other story of that match was um was that the match that sosa kind of passed it back accidentally to the other team yeah we gave Ibrahim, up right? three or four chances where we just carelessly gave up the ball um, out of the back. Um, that was the first bad Sosa game I've seen. Yeah. He, and, so, that, and the only, it's the only bad game I've seen him play. And like, and by bad, I mean, he had a couple little mental errors. Yeah. I mean, Sosa's role is to sit, you know, sort of almost as, as part of the back line, but he's constantly yeah. eyeing out and coming out and Poaching. attacking as a you defensive saw, midfielder. You see that last night, how many yeah. times he did that? Yeah. To and, your point, like he would, you said it in the last podcast and that you, if you watch, like he just reads the game, he sits back, sits almost sits back with the back line. And when mm-hmm. that ball gets played, he just snakes it and just jumps forward and, and then takes it. And this is where I think we have our problem. He takes it to that next level and then it, it kind of, stalls out again we're kind of in that stalled out stage well i love him stepping forward and i love his distribution and he's aggressive about it um yeah you know he occasionally has given up a ball but he's he's not just settling for okay there's a ball that i could make and maybe i have an 80 percent chance of getting it there but there's a or maybe a 90 percent, but there's a 10 percent not and so i'm just going to play it square if he has an 80 90 percent, he's going for it which is which is what you have to do. You have to be able to complete those passes. Now, if you're doing that all the time and you're ending up on the 20% because you're misreading it, then it's a problem. But thus far, he has not ended up that way and he's completed most of them. That being said, not just him, but um, in, in, in the previous game, right, we gave the ball away against Miami two, three, four times, and that's where their chances came from. So on the one hand, you would say that's – uh, warning sign. They have they pressed up the field. <clears throat> we gave them the ball. We gave them really good chances, and Iguain should have scored a couple of yeah. goals from it. Um, on the other hand, you say outside of that, nobody is breaching our defense, and that's a defense that does not yet have Alan Franco fully integrated. I don't know whether Ronald Hernandez is going to be the ultimate right back. He's not integrated yet, but to be honest, I have not seen a defense period in MLS that looks better than what Heinze has as a team defense. I'm not just talking about the individuals on the back line, but we are so well organized and matching up out of it and winning balls in the midfield. Um, That's just really brilliant. And yes, you know, we gave up the chances, you know, turning the ball over. Um, But, you know, outside of that, we look like a team that can consistently get shutouts. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because last night I was uh, 
I went to the game with uh, some some friends, and um, their son actually was the striker for Montreal, um, Bjorn Johnson. So his dad and and I were at the game. You're together. on the in club, yeah, on the in club. <laughs> so it was it was fun to do a little heckling of the game last night with with him. But it was funny him watching that team um, and just seeing how poor and dangerous they were trying to play possession out of the back. The Montreal team you just expected like a disaster at any moment um, versus Atlanta United. And, you know, he, you know, he's, he's somebody who understands soccer, uh, you know, there's just way more confidence the way that Atlanta is actually able to play possession out of the back. And that speaks to them being coached well and also having individuals that can play possession style football out of the back. And that includes Guzan too, who's a veteran 36 years old, who, you know, is very good at kind of helping manage, Mm-hmm. Um, the, the right passes. And it all starts, starts with the goalkeeper, in my opinion, on whether you can play possession out of the back. Sure. You got to have confidence. And Guzan, you know, is amazing in that is one of the few goalkeepers you'll ever see who's confident playing out of the back with either left or right foot, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting, though, is, is, you know, when we've turned the ball over, Sosa has read it and, and protected us so many times. We gave up a goal in the Miami game, though. Um, we turned the ball over and and um, I can't remember the name of the guy who was running at our defense. And um, the interesting thing part about it is that Sosa came over and it was Bello on the left and Tweedy or something like that. What's his? Yeah, it's a French international, I think. Right? Yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Or is Morgan? No, it was Morgan. Okay, it was Morgan. Um, and so anyway, so Morgan's running at the back for. And um, Bello did the right thing and stepped out to the outside guy, which left Sosa on the inside or whatever. And Sosa got beaten. Um, you know, people were on Sosa that, look, you know, he read it a little bit wrong. He didn't play it, whatever. What nobody's talking about is walks on that play guarding nobody. He never senses the danger and comes over to help him, mm-hmm. right? If that had been Sosa in Walks's plot, he would have come over and won that ball. And that's my problem with Walks is that, you know, one-on-one, good defender, you know, um, pretty confident with the ball out of the back, does certain things. But time and time again, in key moments, he fails to read the danger. How is a left center back, do you never come over? He never got beat on that play. So people are like, look, what you know nobody blames him nobody criticizes him nobody says well walks was terrible on that play but if you notice that play he had to come over i blame him 100% right how is a center back do you never read that and come over and you never get beat because he never came over hmm. yeah i don't recall um that goal quite as clearly but um i mean overall though you know wouldn't you say that you know our attacking chances in that game again, kind of reflect some of the concerns of in, I'll even say with last night. I mean, I feel like we're not getting enough shots on goal. There's just not enough urgency in that last part just to, to take a shot. I'll take a Marcelino Moreno shot that goes flying over the post. As long as there's some shots on goal, I don't think we're, we're making kind of that critical decision to just go for it. Well, um, so first of all, I, disagree that the way to go is shots on goal um you know if you look at a pep guardiola and some of the really successful sides they don't settle for half shots as i call them they go for better chances when you do that and you don't yet have it clicking you'll often have a lot of attacking play and not get a shot out of it because you're going for 
you make an extra pass, you go to try to beat someone on the inline, whatever, if it works, you get a 90% goal scoring chance or an 80% goal scoring chance, but often it doesn't work and you never get a shot at all. So um, I am super for that. That's what we should be doing. Ultimately you score way more goals that way. The problem is, if it continues to be unsuccessful, if they don't complete that pass, if they don't beat the guy, they don't get that extra chance or whatever, then, you know, you start to not score. So, um, you know, what I would say is we, we as fans um, have to be a little patient and see whether or not they can convert all of that really attacking. They have the ball in the attacking presence. They're probing. I feel like the movement is still pretty good. It's, possible but if it never clicks which is possible then then that's a problem but i'm going to suspect that they're doing the right thing and it's going to get better and better no i i completely understand your point in terms of trying to build up in a way that increases the probability of the uh the the x factor of of what uh likelihood the goal is going to be what do they call that the formula expected goals expected goals right and so I just don't feel like we are even building it up as often enough to, to do that. I feel like there is just not enough, not, not enough, even, even moments where we're trying to get creative to do that. There's just a lack of creativity and and again, we'll get to Barco, but not on the field. So I, I don't know, like in Jurgen Dom being gone, Jurgen Dom was one of the few people that mm-hmm. can actually take people onto the end line and, complain away about his crosses a part of that is somebody finding themselves in the far post and arriving if you want to complain about Jurgen Dom's crosses um but I've seen enough good ones that people should be arriving and, and finishing them mm-hmm. but I yeah. mean I think it, the answer is so if Joseph Martinez stays the Joseph Martinez he is now then no it's not going to get better um we have to be patient enough to have Joseph Martinez have time, you know, by midseason, if he's Joseph Martinez of old, then we're going to be scoring a lot more goals. Yeah. But that being said, and here's the the wonderful thing about Heinze, right? So we haven't had a guy who's finishing in the middle, right? We have had a pretty tough schedule. DC United, uh, sorry, um, New England, where we went on the road, is a terrific team. It's looking like Montreal is one of the top teams. It's looking like we have had a fairly difficult start to the season. We're still in second place, right? With all of that. Third, I think we're in third on the table. Um, I think I beg to differ. I think right. we're in second. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Google has been wrong on a lot, both on the schedule. <laughs> and so I don't trust Google's table anymore. So. But anyway, the, the um, you know, so I'll sign up for that, right? With, with no Joseph Martinez, with, you know, them getting used to a new coach and having what I think is some growing pains and trying to implement it. You have growing pains and you're still in second place in the league. That means when it actually clicks and whatever, we could go on a five-game winning streak and suddenly be way clear at the top of the table. So I like the way you think. Um, just, man, I, I got to get change my attitude. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I mean, we've been a little bit fortunate. You know, the goal last night, late. Um, but again, you know, last night, um, even though, yes, I agree with you that it's a little disappointing to have that much possession, that much – possession attacking third and not have slightly better chances. The Miami game, I think we had 70% possession in that game. Yeah, but if you 
are winning the ball like we are so often in midfield and keeping people in their own end. This is not DeBoer 70% possession where we get the ball, bring it back to our backs and pass it around for, you know, 20 minutes. This is possession. If you, I, I mean, I'd like to see the stats and I don't have the, the, the access to the analytics to do this, but I would guess even from the early days, if you look at, where our possession is on the field in the Heinze era compared to the Deboa era, I'm going to guess it's five or 10 yards further up the field. Right. And that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Five or 10 yards on average to have those little dots in the, in the graph histogram shift forward. And there's a <laughs> difference between, you know, being cautious and probing, you know, I feel like we are always probing, even when we're passing and around the back, those guys are a looking to, to, to penetrate with passes. They take some risky passes and occasionally doesn't work out. The other thing you see is that, you know, Alan Franco, you know, I don't, we'll talk about why he, where he disappeared in mid, at uh, halftime, but, you know, Alan Franco, Miles Robinson, those guys are allowed to win the ball in midfield, pass it, and continue to go forward. You've seen both of them during regular play showing up close to the 18 of the other team, right? This is, and we do all of that without looking unbalanced. And for an early team to have that kind of thing means that there is some serious coaching going on, people. Well, every time you come here, you kind of change my my outlook. Um, Because, yeah, anything else to talk about on – my in the Miami game that stands out to you? No, I mean, um, you know, I mean, MLS um, history, and I know Tata changed this or whatever, but, you know, outside of Tata Martino, one of the great coaches in the history of MLS, nobody wins on the road. Nobody, right? Um, it's a horrible league for winning on the road, and part probably because, you know, the flights and the, the, the cross-country travel is so brutal. But, um historically MLS, you can look it up, is one of the worst road win percentages of any league in the entire world. Hmm. Um, So, you know, people get a little frustrated. They say, oh, you know, why can't you go on the road and get a result? But in a new era with a new coach at Miami, getting a 1-1 result on the road is, for MLS standards, is probably pretty good. And forget whether that should be the standard or not. In terms of keeping pace in the table, that's good enough. Yeah. Good, good point. And um, yeah, so with the game last night, um, since we had got to see it front and center, what did you, what did you think about being back in the stadium and the, the vibe? Uh, what was your, what was your take last night? Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, it's not just being back, you know, in the stadium and as an LA United fan, but um, just being back amongst people. Yeah. And that was the last night was the first real, real night I've had in, in quite some time. So. It felt different, and um, and uh, you know, actually, I felt like the crowd was um, very into it, but you know, not as into it maybe pre-COVID. And I think people were just, you know, happy to be there. <laughs> True that, and uh, yeah. So I felt like yeah, we we started off with a nice little spark. Um, it was clear that we had a better confidence going about us in the first 10, 15 minutes of that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and really throughout the game, I felt like we controlled the game uh, way more than, than Montreal did. And it was always going to be a team that was trying to hit you on the counterattack, uh, you know, them being away at the Mercedes Benz full capacity. That's the only way you would expect a team to like that. That's built like that to try to 
uh, you know, put it, put a goal in against us. And there are chances that they did have Brad Guzan gave us a chance to scream goose during the game <laughs> and, you know, came up with some really good, good saves. The two chances I can think of that they had goose did such a good job of smothering them that mm-hmm. it almost felt like they didn't even happen. I have to say, and you know, I guess we moved on from the Miami game, but you know, one of the chances that they got in the Miami game was off a turnover counterattack. They crossed the ball and miles Robinson in a rare moment swung and missed at the ball, went right to Iguain. And so there we gave up a tremendous chance, but that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, miles Robinson is not going to swing and miss at too many balls. So um, I think you used the right word and I actually hadn't thought about it that way yet. So use the word control. Um, and, you know, DeBoer always talked about he wanted to control games. And it turned out his idea of controlling the games wasn't being in control at all. It was passing the ball around right. the back to get some stats. And when we lost the ball, we looked vulnerable. It looked like they were going to get chances. When you look at a Heinz team so far, we look more in control. Yeah. We actually, you know, people are going to get beat. You're going to have moments where somebody breaks you down. But – you don't see thus far a Heinz team giving up good chances with nobody getting beat. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's a funny thing to say. You say, oh, sure, someone always gets beat. Under the DeBoer system, sometimes nobody really got beat because nobody was matched up enough to try and, you know, have that moment. Under Heinz, we seem so much more in control. Minus that Philly game. Well, the Philly game, I, I totally disagree. Everybody's talking about the Philly game, right? We came out in the first half of that Philly game against a Philadelphia Union team that was the Supporter Shield winner, very good team, and we were completely in control. Crushed it. I mean, Curtin, you know, was the coach of Philadelphia, was arguing like we were, at, like, really in trouble. They could have been down 3 nothing, and if that is um, – if that is a future, you know, you know, six months from now or even next year or whatever, we would have buried Philadelphia. They would have been gone. One thing I like about the outcome of that is now I have a real good reason to hate Philadelphia and the union and the, and their coach. Um, you know, I, I, I just need some more hate in my life. Dave. Um, <laughs> it's but, good to be a hater. But, uh, you know, I think that the, the episode between Heinze and Curtin is pretty funny as well. And, and Heinze's uh, quotes back were all class and perfect. Um, well, you know, so dear podcast listener, you know, in case you haven't been following it, right. So after um, the game, um, you know, one of the things Heinze was really angry that Philadelphia was just wasting time or people down on the ground, like really egregious wasting time, not just like, okay, we're going to put it out or whatever some, for time, but just like, making fools of themselves and he just wouldn't have anything. And Heinz, you know, this is a Mikey Dobbs kind of coach, right? Because he ain't going to take nothing. Right. And he was, so he refused to shake the hand of Curtin and he, and Curtin thought that that was really, you know, unprofessional and whatever, but I'm like, damn straight. If you're going to, you're going to act unprofessional and they clearly were. I mean, so, and, and I went, I went on to those uh, Twitter sphere places to, get some you know Philadelphia Union comments and they were talking about how of course Atlanta United players dive of course all teams dive and the difference in that game because I was there in person is the absolute not getting up and acting like as if you tore your ACL and laying on the ground for four minutes when you are completely not hurt at all and it's just total acting 
in a CCL type environment and the, and the ref letting you get away with that and the coach letting you get away with that. Right. And uh, it just was really next level as far as one of the top games I've seen where that was allowed. And it's funny, Tata had that fieriness to him, you know, Tata's a super nice guy, but he had this moment, a couple yeah. of moments. I remember one where there was, the team was doing that or whatever, and the ball rolled to him late. Do you remember this on the sidelines? And he hit a bullet right at the guy who was down <laughs> right himself. <laughs> he was pissed, and he kicked the ball right at him from the yeah. sideline. You know, I'm like, yeah, he's feisty too, right? Yeah. Um, so good for Heinze, right? Like, I mean, you know, that could get us in trouble in the future, but he's not going to take anything, and the players are going to take their cue from that. They're not going to take anything either. So I was going to go around the horn on – each player and, and just discuss players. But why don't we start with the coach Heinze? Mm-hmm. I, I think we've already uh, agreed, you know, third in the table, new coach, new system, two, two, and one. Um, the players more than the, the thing that I feel is such a change is you can tell the players love Heinze and will follow him and kick whoever Heinze wants to kick, even if it's his grandmother. You know what I mean? Like you can sense from the interviews, you can sense from the vibe on, on the field, whether it's working or not, they are rally behind whatever his message is and the style that he wants to play. And they have the ultimate respect of Gabriel Heinze. And I think that that to me is, is, is so critical for us to be able to grow back to a position where we make the MLS cup final. I agree. And, and, you know, players, have to be able to gain confidence and and he has thus far seems to be really had the players back too, even with our some of our struggles and finishing and whatever like you know after the philadelphia game people were like wanted you know the media wanted him to say you know we had a disaster whatever he had nothing to, you know his quotes on that game is we play great we play great and he's right yeah. i mean they had an epic meltdown and if you want to have a critique of heinze thus far it was the the, the panic that ensued after we gave up the fluke goal after dominating for so long. But, you know, to Heinz's credit, he didn't throw players under the bus. He didn't throw the team under the bus. He's like, we played well. We continue to do that. We're going to beat them. Yeah. I think his quote was, my team is a joy to watch. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, and if you do that and you give confidence, a guy like Marcelino Moreno, who's had a little bit of a slow start, you know, a lot of coaches would be on him, pulling him, you know, and he's just, okay, keep, keep going, keep getting better. We, you know, keep, you know, and that is a game changer as a coach. So let's start out of the back then with Guzan. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's had nothing but a uh, stellar season thus far everything you'd expect from the veteran who's the highest paid goalkeeper in mls Mm. he's earning his paycheck mikey dobbs going to the internet vault again you know you know stuff 800 800 you know the the motto on this podcast is we we only know a little bit about mls but i think you know a lot about mls i'm starting to i'm starting to know a little (laughs) bit more i mean there's so many teams it's hard to know uh coaches and but i mean i i feel like i'm like that at that five percent point okay five percent that's pretty good we're we're digging ourselves out of zero now you know i agree with you but um the one that guzan took his eye off and almost dropped in the goal and panicked and scrambled back and jumped on it on the line what do you think about that one (laughs) i'm trying to which game was this uh it was the previous game it was against miami right 
Oh. Where he at, he, it was a ball, he, and it was just spinning a little bit, and he took his eye off it for a oh. second. I missed that because I was actually not able to watch that game live. Uh, I, I my daughter had a my U six soccer was really in action. Okay, and we were picking Danny Lynch. It was him. almost um, Pee Wee soccer bad, but yeah, because he just took his eye off and he dropped it for a second of the goal, and he panicked and was like, "Oh, you know, f," and and he jumped on it, and it was. It was on the line. Yeah. Hey. But it didn't go over. So, you know, no harm, no foul. Well, you know, I mean, go- goalkeepers always have uh, something like that. Yeah. And you know, every 20 games. And if you have something like that and don't give up a goal, hallelujah. That's exactly. Even better. That is correct. Yeah. And so, like, anytime, you know, as a striker, you do a, like Moreno last night, scuffing one that he just, you know, you do that as a goalkeeper and it's, it's unforgivable. I think that's the second time in the podcast I said, hallelujah. Yeah. It must be the new COVID rules and this delicious Italian wine. This is excellent, by the way. <laughs> so let's let's jump forward into uh, the center backs, Miles and I guess you would say Walks and, and Franco as yep. the topics. Yeah. I think until, until Franco is truly integrated into the side, it's hard to say. Um, you know, he's had one, two starts. And for whatever reason, last night, he only lasted to halftime. Um, I think you were saying you thought it might have been tactical. I was assuming that he had some slight knock and they were being cautious. But I felt like it was tactical. Just, um, you know, Walks is a pretty physical, great one-on-one defender. And if they were going to score, it was going to be somebody up front doing something physical that Walks was going to be able to shut down. So I felt like... Again, it was Heinze giving Franco a little bit more of a slow roll in and mm. in walks who has been playing pretty decently um, uh, up into this point. Um, you, you know, you can uh, blame his lack of vision to your point, but I think in yeah. terms of just being reliable as somebody to step up in the second half, I think it was, uh, my guess is it was tactical and, and, and also hoping, you know, uh, is not an injury from Alan Franco or you know, Nick. Or yeah, whatever. So, I hope not. Um you know, here's where I'll let you rant, Mikey Dobbs. Yeah. Um, you know, Atlanta United, communications of injuries, go. Oh, are you kidding me? I don't even know if Barco's alive. Um, he yeah. may, I mean, he's, <laughs> is he back in Brazil? Uh, I mean, no, Argentina. Uh, is he having a rendezvous with is, one of the other players' wives? Who knows? I know. So, again, this is where the club leaves us to speculate uh, and go down you know, roads that we don't need to as fans. And I don't understand why they can't say, look, it's a hamstring injury. We're taking it day by day. Like maybe they are maybe in, and I feel like I no, they're not because okay. you know, the, the, you know, well, not I to look, say we're I not look, the first class media, but the rest of the media besides the ATL on fire with the inside scoop, they're saying the same things. We don't know anything. Yeah. And, and Jurgen Dom, same situation. And same with, uh, you know, we'll get to the, the right back. Uh, Ronald Hernandez. Yeah, and Rosetto the same way. We should talk about, you know, no information. Yeah. His situation, I thought I read something the other day about uh, there was an update on Rosetto, and I forget. Yeah, the update is that so so because because we can only have a certain number of internationals, and even though we used TAM money to buy an international slot, mm-hmm. brilliant, by the way. Who knew you could do that? Uh, <laughs> you know what we did because that was one of our trivia questions yes, back in the day. Yes, we, <laughs> thanks to Mikey Dobbs. We knew you heard it here first on the ATL on fire. Um, but, um, you know, outside of that, so we can only have a certain number of internationals. And um, so when they got Alan Franco, he's another international spot. So... 
um, Rosetto, Rosetto um, is Brazilian, and apparently he's been back in Brazil the whole time trying to get um, a visa so yeah. that he doesn't count as an international. But we didn't learn that from Atlanta United. We learned that from some of the South American media who's been tweeting about it. I mean, come on, why can't they tell us that too? It's infuriating, and I don't, I do not understand. There's no benefit at all from not being clear on what the situation is. It's really is. disrespectful to the fans, right? You know, you don't have to always be 100% honest. You know, there's yeah. reason to be cagey at times or whatever. But not to give information at all is disrespectful. You know, people are turning out 40,000. And I don't usually say this, 40,000, 70,000 per game. And you have a bit of a right to know, you know, about whether a player is not on the field because – it's coach tactical or because it's, you know, visa or because it's injury. Well, you, you have a right to know. Well said. I didn't, that was your rant. That wasn't even my rant. See, uh -oh. look at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So going around the horn, Miles Robinson, how, how do you think his, his play has been? You know, I mean, I think he's been outstanding. Um, he's had a couple of moments where he just made, like a boneheaded first touch or the one where he swung and missed that we just talked about. Um, and you can't sort of believe that, but um, I feel like the more he gets comfortable with Sosa in the middle of him, you know, in the middle of the center back pairing at times, and the more he gets comfortable with who I think is going to be Alan Franco um, reading the game next to him. I think, you know, we have the possibility of having a sec a center back pairing where you just know, even going into the playoffs, that we're not going to give up a goal. Yeah. I'm just, I, yeah, I will say, I feel like Miles has really matured in the last year and a half. Like, mm -hmm. I know you were even saying, like, well, let's, let's wait and see mm -hmm. how Miles, but he really, I feel, has become much more consistent on. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to make a bonehead move. And, and like I said, the ball came across in that one game and he didn't get his foot on it. Um, and yeah, just, but that's something you don't really even critique the player. Like, okay, yeah. that's weird and weird didn't happen. But yeah. what you really – the things that you, as a coach, you can live with all that. That's not going to really hurt you. It's such a fluke. It's not going to happen. But, you know, unless it starts happening all the time. But um, the thing that you can't live with is the something that most people don't really see. Like I was talking about with walks, right? You cannot live with a guy not reading it and coming over. And if you watch Robinson – Unlike walks, he's always coming over being that second guy, making the right play. He's yeah. aggressive about it. And under um, Heinze, he's clearly, well, all of the back four, but he's been given the license to be aggressive. And that's amazing because when he's aggressive, he's so good at winning the ball. He's so physical. And that means we win balls at midfield. And, you know, for those of you who are listening to the podcast for the last couple of years, we talked so much about DeBoer's team's failure to win the ball at midfield and having to go back to our own goal constantly. And that is not true with Heinze, and it's not true under this system, and Miles Robinson is thriving in that. So do you think Heinze will help Walk's development as well? Um, presumably. Um, you know, it, I, you know the, the one question you have as a coach in general is, you know, can you coach that the the reading of the game and, and, and seeing the next, whatever a guy like Sosa just makes that decision, right. All the time. I think miles Robinson makes that decision, right. Most of the time, I think he'll get that extra 5%, maybe in watching Sosa, who's 
at yeah. 23 people to watch Sosa make decisions. If you want to learn as a player, if you're a player out there and you're listening to the podcast, or if you're a parent of a player and you're listening to the podcast and you want your kid to thrive, go to a game, not on TV where you can't watch a single player, go to a game and just tell your kid to watch Sosa for 20 minutes straight. Yep. And just see the way he's looking, reading, moving. It's absolutely brilliant. And he does not have, you know, the things that every American coach and every American tryout goes for. He's not fast. He's not super strong. He's got a weird way of playing the balls that are not like some of the balls look like they almost aren't going to get there. Like, like 30 yards is maybe a little too long for his passing. He just looks like he's got all kinds of deficiencies, but he's always winning the ball. He's making great decisions. He's probing. And even the few times he's gone forward, his runs into the box are absolutely brilliant. He's been forward probably, you know, two times a game. And every time he goes forward, he's a danger to score. Yeah. Well, you've said it all on Sosa. I don't have anything to add. So why don't we move to George Bello on the left wing? I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about Bella. Um, I think he's making incremental progress slow. Um, he's not, he's not, I think, you know, this is the first season where he's just getting all the starts Mm -hmm. too. So I think, um, I'm optimistic for his progress. I think he is definitely one of the players if, um, uh, under the right circumstances is one of the guys that can be our attacking threat. He can take people on. He's creative, creative enough to challenge, uh, you know, people and put them on their heels. I'd like to see a little more of it in certain him to have that confidence when it comes to that moment. But I mean, I don't think there's a lack of confidence really in George Bellow either, which is nice to see that he's he's ready for this stage. Um, I think he he must be a kid that has his head together, and mm-hmm. so he's got all the right traits in my opinion to keep developing. And I am not at this point, I'm not seeing a step back, which means he's probably making a step forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say he's improving for sure. Um, Whether he's improved a lot. I don't know. Yeah. I don't Um, feel like there's been like a leap. He still has moments reading the game in the back where he's at sixes and sevens and he's getting away with it a lot because of his sheer pace. Um, Offensively looks really dangerous. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting, um, last night watching at the stadium, I could watch a little bit more about what he was doing off the ball. And Heinz actually has um, um, Brooks and he has Bello quite high up the field too, um, which is something I was critical of DeBoer for. Um, but they still seem at least to be a little bit more dynamic. And maybe even when they're up the field that far, it's it's trying to create a space for someone else. Um, you know, I don't – it doesn't seem to me as rote, meaning, you know, when, when, when we used to win the ball under DeBoer, those right and left backs would just automatically sprint 50 yards up the field and stand there, right? And I don't get that impression – at times they ended they ended up last night pretty far up the field and they were standing there, but they didn't get there just flying up the field blindly. Yeah. They got there as the team got forward and whatever, and they ended up there. So, um, which is a really it's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. So we'll jump to the other side of the field with Brooks Lennon then, and mm-hmm. I almost do feel like there's like the last couple games like a little bit of a slide. 
in mm. terms of like, I mean, I'll never question that guy's work rate, but in terms of impact um, and getting into dangerous situations. And, and I guess he's always been a solid defender, um, but I feel like our back line is, uh, is good enough at this point where I'd rather see a little bit more dynamic action from that side, which is why I like Jurgen Dom uh, instead. Um, and hopefully, you know, that, that'll be the case, but uh, I don't know. What, what were your thoughts? I almost a hundred percent disagree with you. <laughs> okay. um, I've never been comfortable with him exactly as a defender. I've always felt that's his weakness. Um, I feel like he's played better defensively um, under Heinz or this year. Um, and overall, I, I felt like so far he's been really good. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't, I don't have anything negative to say about Lennon, but it's like, I'm, I struggle to come up with a lot of positives. I guess my bar is maybe a little lower because <laughs> <laughs> I, I started with not as high a view of him, but I thought he's played well. He's looked to me solid in defense going forward, you know, can swing the ball in pretty well. Is he, you know, look dynamic? No, but I think he's, I, I, I like his movement. I like his a couple of times, you know, Something that I look for, um, if for those of you who um, have watched me coach, you know, on my team, I'm constantly saying to my players, commit to the run, right? You know, Americans in particular and, and soccer in general, when it's being played poorly, you have people running, you know, five yards, 10 yards and looking to see whether the ball is going to come. And then if it's not, they slow down and stop. And when you commit to a run, you don't do that. You go 20, 30 yards regardless if the guy plays you the ball. And what that does is if they play you the ball because you've committed to it, you're going to get there. You're going to get there. And then if they don't play it to you, it opens things up. Somebody somewhere else. Right. And what I've been impressed with Brooks Lennon is that he's committed to the run. And a couple of times he hasn't actually made a great play, but he's opened it up for someone else. Okay. Um, Well, I like, I like Lennon. Um, I, you know, he, he's a guy that, uh, I have no problem getting the start. I, I think that Jurgen Dom is, I guess, in front of him, but um, yeah, injured maybe. Injured. <laughs> um, okay, so who who do we go to now? We can go to Sosa, I suppose, which we've talked about plenty. Yeah, I think so I you said we were moving on because we talked about him too much. Yeah, we, we've talked about Sosa plenty. Uh, Heinemann. Heinemann. Uh, oh, man, he's another one that maybe. He's so he's so quiet to some degree. When he gets involved, he's fantastic. But and, and he might be playing really well. I, I'm not able to really make a good assessment on him because he might be playing fabulous because he because he's not jumping out in my head as somebody who's doing anything positive or negative on the field. And that might that's a higher likelihood of the fact that he's actually playing well. To me, I think I'm going to go with that. Yeah, because. Um, I think Sosa's making him a phenomenal player. Hyman is a really smart player, and his movement has always been good. Um, but when, you know, I think defensively, he's been asked sometimes to be, you know, the guy who's reading it and whatever. He's just not that good enough. He's not Nogby. He's not um, Sosa. Um, and when he was asked to sort of do that, he just um, was limited. But now he's being asked to play off of that which means he can play defensively, 
but he's not the sole responsibility for picking up the most dangerous guy or for reading the game. He's reading off of Sosa. And when he does that, he's a way better player. So somebody who I think I'm actually high on um, is a new player, Ibarra. Mm-hmm. What, what are you, what's your take on him? I, I feel like since he is so young, I want to say he's only like 19 or yeah, 20. Yeah, he's 19 years old. 19 years old. <laughs> and uh, boy, I think that guy's got some upside on this team. Am I wrong? I think so too. You know, when I, in the first few games when he played, like um, in the CONCACAF Champions League in the first round, um, he played, but he looked to me over his head. Um, he looked a little bit deer in headlights. But um, over the last two games, he's already looked like he's settled a little bit. And he, he has talent. Um, you know, the question is, has he settled to where he is now? Or is that just the beginning and he's going to build off that? Yeah. I don't know the answer. Good good point. And on the other side, um, Eric, it's Eric Lopez, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I'm going to kind of the non-traditional starters. But uh, – He's somebody who's been on the twos, correct, for a couple, couple Well, years. he had to be on the twos, no. So they, they bought him to be on the full side, but there was something, again, about the crazy um, rules. He wasn't allowed – he wasn't eligible to play for our full side, even though we had signed him. That's right. So he was never intended to be on the twos. He was intended to be on the full side. And as soon as the paperwork or the visa or whatever the heck it was that was limiting him um, – he's been moved up to the full side. And I had pretty limited hopes for him. But he's actually impressed me. He's yeah. active, um, two good feet. He looks like a guy who can maybe score. Again, super young. Right. Um, we might have one of the youngest teams in the MLS. Am mm-hmm. I wrong? I mean, yes. and the people that we're talking about either are okay where they're at or they've got a much higher ceiling, which right. to me is exciting as a fan. Um, all right, I'll go to Marcelina. Marcelino Moreno, mm-hmm. who quietly, I know there's going to be some people who are just like, that guy is not doing well. I, he might be my favorite Atlanta United player. Um, I, I love the way he plays um, without being, you know, overly dramatic about anything. He keeps his cool. And I was so happy he got a goal last night. You know, he needed the goal. needed the goal. But I don't know. There's so much that he does to impact the game that I just see as somebody who's played the game. I'm like, he is so much changing the way that this game is going by his activity, just being involved. And, you know, I think just like PT Martinez was trying to figure out how do you, how to act uh, the correct way with the way you get away with getting bumped and you dive like MLS has a different <laughs> feel for that. I think Moreno is going through that same thing. You, you almost have to know how to, take the dive in the correct way in the MLS, which is very different than it is in the, the premier league of the Argentinian uh, uh, league. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's just like a learning curve of how to get the call. It's not like a, di- he's not trying to dive. It's the way that you dive in the different leagues. It's a different way that you pick up the messaging that the refs are accepting it as, okay, you didn't have a chance. You got, you were at a disadvantage by getting bumped and being able to, I don't know. Am I making sense? No, that makes sense. I mean, whenever you get to a new league, you have to sense it. And, and um, you know, Barco had a huge transition yeah. with this. At first, he was just flop city. But, um, you know, I, I'm mixed on Moreno. I was expecting better things, I think. Maybe I had higher expectations. One of the things that's been a little disappointing to me about um, Moreno is that 
he has seemed a little bit overly cautious, right? Like maybe he doesn't want to lose the ball. He can clearly take on a guy and usually he can beat him. But a lot of times I've seen him, you know, probing, probing, but then the last second he veers away and just keeps it. And I'd, to be honest with you, I'd like to see him maybe even lose the ball more, but try to, you know, create right. something a little more. I think that's definitely a fair comment. And that's one of the reasons we're not breaking through in that last third of the field right. is because we need someone like Moreno that's got the skill set right. to do that. So that's a really fair point. And if there's anybody on the team that should be expected to do it, he is one with Barco. And- yeah, Barco's the other one, right? And and maybe, you know, I was thinking with Moreno and Barco together as a dual threat, you know, then you can't really key on one or whatever. And that's really dangerous. Um, if Barco is yeah. still alive. So where does that leave us? Number seven <laughs> on the, the list to go through. Yeah. We got to talk about Martinez. Yeah. Joseph Martinez. Um, you know, I felt like confidence wise, there was definitely, again, a little, you could see a little bit more of, under the big stage that he's, he's still working through a lot of mental things on where to be on the field, committing to your point, like committing to a run, mm-hmm. he's committing to the run 80%, not 99 or a hundred. Like he used to commit to the run 105%, which is why he got so many goals. You have to commit 105% and he is only at 80% commitment right now. And you mm-hmm. can see that in everything he's doing. Um, from coming back to check to the ball, to your point, and mm-hmm. not being confident in, hey, I'm just going to turn this with the inside of the outside of my foot, and this guy is not going to see me again. He's squatting, to your point, and just, like, taking the hit and saying, being like, okay, can my leg take this? Um, mm-hmm. Can I take the contact? It's, like, all up mm-hmm. in his head. It's like, mm-hmm. can I take the bang from from somebody coming from behind, hitting the back of my leg? Am I going to be okay? That is absolutely what's going on and he's got to get to the next level mentally it's all yeah. mental because he I, I think his knee's fine and it is a mental game for him at this mm-hmm. point that unfortunately if he doesn't get on a streak that that mountain will get bigger and bigger to climb yeah it's gonna become more of a you know a burden you know something on his back kind of thing you can't get the monkey off your back initially um he had the score, which is good, um, but he, and he's going to have to score again to, to continue to get that. Even if he doesn't play well, if he can score, he gets a little bit of a better feeling. Um, yeah, it's it's a problem. Um, he is a shell of his former self at the moment, um, confidence-wise, and you can see it. I mean, you know, um, the movement. There are times when he's just not running. Um, there, yeah, there was some plays last night. There was there was a play we were on a breakaway, and he just sat back instead of streaking yeah. to the danger zone. And I'm like, what is going on? That was last night. Yeah. I was like, why is he not running into the box? Yeah. He did not run into the box last night on a moment that Joseph Martinez yeah. would be screaming at Joseph Martinez. And in the box, the box, he hasn't been, you know, there was, there was one where he should have scored where um, – Oh, that header that came through, and he just – didn't I, he almost like shrugged it? No, I was talking about the one there was a scramble and um, the ball came out and he went diving in it. Maybe it was a Miami game. Um, the ball was on the ground and it like it came off like like the goalkeeper gave up a rebound. Yeah, and he was first to the rebound. He was quick to react to it, but he was 
still slightly not willing to really throw. If he really committed to that one last year, he would have scored that. Yeah. Because they got it. They would have had a, still had enough to block it. But if he had gone stronger through it, it would have gone in. Yeah. And he got there quick, quickly and early, but he just didn't go as hard enough. Do you know, there's one thing with his ACL that I feel like maybe he did hitting a keeper in an earlier game. Like, it may have been before. He he went in so hard with a keeper one time mm-hmm. and powered it through. Mm-hmm. Right on it. Like, he kicked through it. And I was just, I remember, like, my knee aching <laughs> on that one. And I wonder if that had an, any – Yeah, maybe. Neither he nor there. But I feel like, you know, your, your knee takes a blow <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, Some players are never the same. I know. Some players never come back, people. You have to think about this. Um, I don't think that's going to happen with him. I think he's too, um, you know, motivated, too motivated, bullheaded. bullheaded, But but his confidence is just not there at all. Yeah. So I think we've we've gone through everyone, correct? Pretty much. We talked about it all. We've talked about it all. I haven't talked about Mole Rainey. Oh, Mole Rainey. So set up the winning goal, people. So you know. Got to give him credit. Redemption. There. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I think Mulraney is one of those guys to your point that was brought on because he's got pace and you saw the benefits of that at the end of the game last night when Bello slotted him a through ball and we, we broke through. Thank you referee for giving us an extra minute um, on that play. And uh, yeah, what a fabulous, it was a fabulous header by Moreno. I went back and looked at it again today because we, we are sitting on the opposite side of the stadium when mm-hmm. it happened. So mm-hmm. all I saw was a little speck and then <laughs> the supporters group go crazy. But I, I, yeah, I felt like um, that was a really nice goal all around. So here, yeah, here's coaching, right? And you'll see whether it holds. You can, you can follow this podcast listener, right? So um, Heinze loves inverted wingers. Um, you know, full disclosure, I do not. Um, so he likes right footers on the left, left footers on the right, because they can cut in and have a shot from there. Um, that's why you see Marcelino Moreno playing on the left. He's right-footed. Um, he has had Mulraney playing on the right as a winger. It is awful because Mulraney constantly gets pied people on the right and he can't cross the ball with his right foot. So he cuts it back. We lose all momentum. He has to pass it out. I mean, it's just been horrific to watch. But you'll be interested, right? So he didn't start last night. But when he came on, if you notice, he came on on the left, mm-hmm. right? So Heinze has already made an adjustment. He has seen enough of that, right? Um, and you know, could be just a circumstance and that was just a whatever. And he's going to go back to the right. I think if Heinze is as good a coach as I think he might be, you know, that's an adjustment that he has made and you will not see Mulraney back on the right again, because it's just a nightmare. He's getting by and Brooks Lennon is opening up for him and he cannot cross the ball. He's just not confident enough to do it. His right foot is not terrible. Actually, he just won't do it. He just cuts the ball back to his strong foot every time. And he, you're like a couple of times he's by there and he hit a cross in rhythm. We would have a real chance, right? And he just won't do it. But yesterday he was on the left. He crossed the ball with his left foot. He's got a terrific left foot. He whipped it in goal. So back to Joseph. And I put this on the the Twitter account, Joseph Martinez, 10 goals over or under the season. (laughs) You're in Vegas and you got to spend Dave's hard earned money on this. I don't want an emotional one. I want a betting bet here on that as a rational person. Does he get over or under spot on 10 goals? As an analyst, I'm going to say under. I just don't see the confidence in it. 
Um, I hate to as a, as an optimist. Um, what I'm hoping is that he at some point downshifts, gets that confidence. So you could see him at mid season having two goals, maybe even two thirds, three quarters of the way through the season, having three goals and then getting on a tear going into the playoffs and score six and six games kind of thing. But if he's going to get into the higher numbers, it's going to be late. He doesn't have it right now, folks. I I hate to tell you that. So what do we do then? If, if that doesn't happen, that's the only way that we are making any sort of attempt to win anything this season. It's all, all on Joseph in terms of being able to produce goals right now because Barco might just, he might be back in Argentina. Like we said, we don't know where he is. Well, what I would say is look, if, if Barco is back on the field and you got Moreno and Barco, I don't think there's any need to panic. You can really have confidence. And with the way we control the game, you know, Heinze has proven that we can stay at the top of the table without scoring a lot of goals. Um, And so I think as long as that continues to happen and we're not doing too badly, he's going to keep running him out there. We don't really have a plan B. Um, You know, the plan B was supposed to be um, Torres and, and he's terrible. I mean, he's just, again, he's going back to the article we were talking about, you know, that was Bocanegra, you know, he was a, uh, an MLS player who, but before he got hurt, scored a lot of MLS goals. Bocanegra had confidence that he was back to being a player, whatever. And I think he is struck out. He is not the player he yeah. was. So, I mean, that's the thing. He's a proven player that knows how to score, but boy, he just doesn't look like he knows how to score a goal. No, he does not. He does not look like it. And I don't think he's ever going to score a goal again. I mean, not to say he's never going to score a goal, but he's never going to be yeah, $15, $20 scorer. goal scorer. Yeah. Um, the one wild card I might say is beyond having the two attacking midfielders doing well, Barco and Moreno, if they're going well, they'll score enough goals and we'll be okay. Um, Rosetto. I mean, Rosetto and Lopez, um, Rosetto and Torres, excuse me, both look like they have quick and whatever and could be a real second guy. None, neither of them have really gotten a chance to see that. No, uh, Rosetto and who? Cause you said Torres. Um, Torres. Oh no, um, not Torres. Um, um, Eric Lopez, Eric Lopez, yeah. right? It's Eric gets, Lopez, it gets yeah. me confused because we have Lisandro Lopez yeah. and Eric Lopez. I know, and okay. Eric Lopez is what I'm talking. Yeah, about. no, Eric Lopez. I agree. I think um, there's again, like I said, he's young, and there's a lot of upside there. Let's see if he can step into that. Yeah, I mean, Eric Lopez is uh, 19 years old. <laughs> what about what about um, Wolf? Um, He's not getting any minutes. What's the... Yeah, you're not going to see him get minutes either. He's just not ready yet. Not ready. Home. How old is Wolf? I mean, I think the guy who might be much more ready is Machuk Chol. Yeah. Um, as a winger, if we need him. If, if um, um, Dom is not back you know, anytime soon, you'll probably see a bit of Machuk Chol. He was a DDY player. Yeah. Yeah. Local. Local boy. Yeah, for those of podcast listeners, we had Jeff Newberry on the podcast and he predicted that Machup Chol would be back um, and they still had some rights to him that they would sign him and that he would be a good player. So, you know, right now he's looking like Notre Dame. That's awesome. And yeah, I I only got to see a few minutes of him. I don't know if it's a preseason game where maybe he scored a goal. Mm -hmm. Um, 
he, he boy what an awkward build he has right <laughs> like he's super lean right and so yep he also seems like he's got really good you know footwork as well as a dribbler so he'd be an interesting one to your point to come in and you know tr- try to you know maneuver around some people like i i, th- I feel again that is where just like from the eye test and again, that goes back to Moreno and to Bello. Like, I want to see more people trying to to take people on an attack. And and unfortunately, a lot of the times that it's happened this year, I feel like people just literally run into the defender. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> There's been a lot of that. There, mm-hmm. there hasn't been a lot of like try to push the ball by somebody and let it go off the, over the end line type of lose. Like we like literally are running into the defense and losing the ball. Uh, and that's, like, oh, it's painful to watch when that when it goes down that way. Right. Versus like a, a Jurgen Dom, which he almost all the time is able to push it by somebody and, and at least get an attempt at getting a cross in because he's already got the half step um, of pace there. So we need more of that, in my opinion, to get that X factor, XG factor of higher probability crosses. Because um, even the one from Moreni, Morena, uh, uh, Mulraney Mulraney, at the end of the game last night it wasn't like the full uh flow of play because he kind of ran down the field right and Mm -hmm. cut it back and the play slowed down everybody kind of like got their footing in the box he crossed it to Moreno and the ball had enough pace on it with the cross which is why he was able to get the power from so far out to to play it in but it wasn't that kind of free-flowing goal where the defense is purely on the back foot it was almost like a little bit of a pause cross came in and then boom it went in so actually you know based on your comment before I you know I, I pulled up the roster and I, I just want to run down the ages right of the outfield players it stands out Anton Walks, 24. Alan Franco, 24. Brooks Lennon, 23. Miles Robinson, 24. Bello, 19. Sosa, 21. Barco, 22. Joseto, 24. Eva Moreno, the designated player, 26. Ibarra, 20. Heinemann, 25. Jurgen Dam, the oldest field player on the entire team, 28. No kidding. Still in his prime. I would right. have made a trivia question. Why didn't I have, have that out? Mole Rainey, 25. Joseph Martinez, still only 27. Is he really? Eric Lopez, 19. So <laughs> that's, a, you know. that's a great rundown right yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. So, All that, right. yeah, dear podcast listeners. Yeah, and this is the, mo- this is the, the model for the club is, is to, to be a developing club and, you know, keep a couple of players like Martinez and sell on most of the players for – for profit, but you know, future's bright for that group. Yeah. And, and to your point, do you think that this will always be the tough part of being an Atlanta United fan where in the MLS, particularly we're going to see a two to three year cycle where like the roster is new every three years, you know, almost top to bottom. What I would say is if that's the case, then um, you shouldn't worry about it because if we're able to sell those players on, that means they've had some success and that means yeah. we're winning, winning, winning. So um, I wouldn't worry about it, right? If, if we're not winning, it's not going to turn over because we're not going to be able to sell them. Random, random thought. 10 years from now, do you think MLS actually is the Super League? 
Um, you mean in terms of what they were trying to create in the European Super League, you mean? Yes. And um, I know that, that might be the most ridiculous thing I've ever said. <laughs> or it might be something 10 years from now, you're like, yeah, we should have seen that coming. Uh, it's not going to be the Super League, no. Um, I would say, is there a possibility that in 10 years that MLS is a legitimate, you know, as good of, as the European leagues? Yeah. I mean, I think that's possible. Well, the, re- the reason I'm saying this is because of the Super League. Um, what, it, what it showed is a lot of the fiscal irresponsibility that's happening, especially in La Liga mm-hmm. and Serie A, where if you're bankrupt, you're bankrupt. It doesn't matter what the system is, right? And so it's also – Apparently not. Barcelona and Real Madrid can just keep spending. I know. I don't get it. So I I don't get it. But at some point that does – I just have to believe that the repercussions of the economics there are going to bite them in the ass, which is why they try to create the Super League. And, you know, as an optimist of the MLS, the – again, players that are coming to – Atlanta United and more and more of the MLS teams from the South American side that would have previously gone to Europe clubs. And that actually may be having an impact on their development of bringing in more international, international players to their Academy systems early on Mm -hmm. is actually having an impact. And so if the MLS is starting to pick that momentum up, what does that mean for European soccer with, you know, all of the South Americans who had previously kind of looked looked that direction. Well, a lot of the American clubs, you know, do have financial power, um, even for the fact that the league isn't making, you know, as much money as, you know, Premier League, the the TV rights are just ridiculous. Um, But they have buying enough power to have really nice facilities to be able to, um, you know, buy younger players and keep them a few years. So, um, yeah, I think you're going to, you know, see that, um, there, there could come a moment when some of those players are not just trying to make the leap, use it as stepping stone to Europe and might stay. I mean, we're, we're a long way from that now, but. Is there anything that MLS can do to be able to pay players more? Like, what's the reason that, I mean, it's, it's gotta be pretty straightforward in terms of just the attendance and the money that's coming in and the TV broadcast and what that's bringing into the coffers of MLS based on the pool of money they can play players. But it it feels like we could almost take a risk at some point on increasing the salaries to entice some of the Liga MX players even to come over earlier in their career or right at the beginning of their career uh, to, to be in the MLS versus uh, the Mexican league. And I feel like that is once that tide starts to shift. And I think that will over the course of five years, then it's not just the economically struggling cup, uh, countries of Argentina that are giving their players to us early mm-hmm. on, that it's also coming from Mexico. Well, what I would say is that, you know, uh, people, I, a lot of people probably don't know this, but we almost had a holdout strike in MLS this year. Oh, the collective bargaining right. agreement was up and you know the mls owners or whatever played hardball about salaries um there's a great fear and i think a a a reasonable one um you know u.s soccer they've tried to start multiple times and failed you know um the nasl being the famous example right um and 
you know, MLS was on shaky ground for a long time and a number of the initial franchises folded within the first few years. Um, you know, when you look at a Portland or a Seattle or an Atlanta United now, it's hard to imagine those days, but um, it's not that far. And some of the clubs that are not those clubs, um, you know, they're not Atlanta United. They don't have Arthur Blank as the owner. They don't have 72,000 coming to a game. Um, so I, I would be in favor of, I think they're doing it right and being overly cautious. The other reason I, I joke about MLS becoming the Super League in 10 years is because of the ownership. And the reason that they tried to, tried to create the Super League to begin with is because of relegation. Right. Why would you want to risk everything to all of a sudden find your, and you're, you know, it would, you gamble long enough, you can, you're going to fall down the table. Yep. And that's what happened to Leeds United. They went down to the, right. the fourth division or whatever. Right? right. I mean, and if you're Glazer, you don't want the that to happen. of Mordor for Leeds. So that's the reason that <laughs> all, all the U S sports are uh, again, a more of a stable closed system mm-hmm. is because of the finances of it. You can look, yep. at, you can say that, promotion and relegation is pure capitalism in the terms of the way it works competitively, but economically it's not the most capitalistic thing because you don't want to play that risk of losing everything. Well, promotion rele- relegation is um, speaking as a geneticist is Darwinian, right? You know, survival of the fittest, yeah. right? It's um, a performance-based model. You love it as a fan. It's yeah. Like, it's right. I mean, and you can, f- you know, if, if, if you build it, they will come and if they come and you survive, then, and then you play, you know, put the stadium in Iowa, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful thing. That's, that's part of the beautiful game. It's the joy and the agony of it. And and why, I mean, you, you can see it in American sports, right? You know, particularly with the modern analytics of drafts, you know, these teams that are, you know, in last place. And they're like, not only do they not have any incentive to win, but they're trying actively to lose to make sure that they get the number one pick, you know, and they've had to put in things to make sure that they don't do that by saying, all right, it's not the worst record is going to be number one anymore. It's a lottery amongst the bottom, you know, five or whatever that can't happen at all in soccer because, because of relegation, there used to be every incentive in the world for the bottom three to try as hard as possible. Um, So, you know, I, I think, you miss that. And with the number of American cities, um, it would be really elegant to have, you know, to figure out what, what are those cities could be soccer mad um, and have, have them come about. But, you know, American owners are risk averse and, and they have other leagues that they can point to and say, well, those owners don't have to take the risk. Why should we? Right. All right. So we've talked about a lot. We've talked is about it all that we need to talk at all about. I think we've talked about it all, Mikey all right. Dobbs. Well, thank you for this delicious red wine. This was awesome. Here's to be back in front of the fire. No doubt. Cheers. Thanks and for thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, see you next time. Let's keep this uh, win streak going.
All right. Thanks for listening. If anybody actually made it this far in the podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter at ATL on fire and tell your friends to subscribe. We are on iTunes, Google play, and really any sort of podcast, uh, platform that you're on. So do listen again. Have a good one.